This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works and others in the book world about their jobs, what those jobs entail, and the books that they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate for sponsoring my podcast. If you like this podcast, I have another podcast that I would love to recommend to you. It's called A Bookish Home by Laura Kapinski. She interviews authors as well, and some of her recent author interviews include Christina Baker-Klein, Sarah Penner, and Kristen Harmel. I really enjoy her show, and I hope you'll check it out. Today, I am chatting with Jenna Blum about Woodrow on the Bench. Jenna is a New York Times and international bestselling author and one of Oprah's top 30 women writers, with her work published in over 20 countries, and co-founder, CEO of literary social media marketing company, A Mighty Blaze. She is based in Boston, teaching at Grub Street Writers, where she has been running master fiction and novel workshops for over 20 years. She earned her MA in creative writing from Boston University. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Jenna. How are you today? I'm very well, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad you're here because I absolutely loved Woodrow on the Bench and I can't wait to talk about it. That is so nice to hear. You can't imagine the book is so new out in the world and I'm getting some lovely response from readers and I'm very, very grateful. And we're in a whole new world in terms of books coming out into the world right now compared to when your earlier books came out. Indeed. New book, new world, like new phone, who dis? So my previous <laughs> three books were novels and this is a memoir. And obviously it's coming out during a pandemic, if we can still say we're, we're in the pandemic and was affected by the supply chain. So Woodrow on the Bench was rolled out a sort of a rolling launch starting on October 26th. And just now, as I'm out on the road promoting it with my new dog, Henry Higgins, I'm starting to see all the hardcover books and I can tell you, I've always been really excited when my hardcovers come in because it's like, wow, you're holding the baby for the first time. But now I feel like I'm holding a baby that has come to me through a blockade. So it's super exciting. I bet. And yes, it's just crazy, all this supply chain stuff. So to even have it rolling is an interesting way to do it. But at least that way, it's not getting pushed off completely. Right. And I had being me, I'm a person who will run over somebody on the street to get to a microphone. So I had set up all of these events with my publisher, 25 events starting on 10, 
25. And then we just thought, well, we don't want to cancel all those events. They're ticketed bundles. Readers are really excited about it. So we're just going to do a rolling launch. And I guess that's a new, a new thing now. I like that. Well, before we get any further along in our conversation, why don't you give me a quick synopsis of Woodrow on the Bench for those that won't have read it yet? Yes, I would be happy to. Thank you. Woodrow on the Bench is my first memoir. And I always have to say it that way because I feel like there's something very Zsa Zsa Gabor <laughs> about oneself. So my memoir. And it is based on the fact that my very old black lab Woodrow, when he was 14, which is basically Methuselah for a lab, got a diagnosis of congestive heart failure. and his cardiologist, and yes, my dog had a cardiologist, told me that within a couple of weeks to a month, I should be prepared to make the very difficult decision to put Woodrow down. And Woodrow lasted well into his 15th year. He lived seven more months. And here, I think, is why. Every morning and night, I would carry him like an 85-pound log in a harness, because he was not very mobile, out to his bench across from our downtown Boston apartment. And that was about as far as we could go. And there he would sit in the dirt next to the bench and hold court. And as we sat on the bench, I thought I was going to be working. But Woodrow, whose nickname was the George Clooney of dogs, drew people to us with his animal magnetism. And neighbors and friends, dog parents started keeping us company on the bench, bringing us coffee, bringing us food, carrying Woodrow's waste bags to the trash can so I didn't have to leave him. And then something even more extraordinary happened and Woodrow started tractor beaming in total strangers who did the same thing, who would spend time on the bench with us, wedding anniversaries, you know, sorority meetings, people just gathered to us because of my old dog and knit themselves into this community. And I think that that really extraordinary love was what helped lift Woodrow up well into his 15th year. And I thought, I just have to write about this, the power of a very old dog to unite people in a time of national and international incivility. So the book is really a love letter to Woodrow, to anybody who's ever loved an old dog, anybody who's going through human grief as well, because I lost my mom right before Woodrow got that diagnosis. And also a love letter to this community of extraordinary people, strangers and friends alike, who really lifted us up. Well, I think people love stories about community and people coming together and rallying around whatever it is. And in this instance, it's Woodrow and your relationship with Woodrow. And I just loved it. I just thought it was so touching. I wish I could have known Woodrow. I wish I could have come by the bench. I think you're probably hearing that from a lot of people. I am. And even the people who knew Woodrow well in all of his various chapters of life are really excited to get their hands and paws on the book because he was one of those dogs who you hear people say, oh, he was a really special dog, like not throwing shade at my current lab, Henry, who is is amazing. Henry Higgins, 19 month old lab who's on tour with me and, and lying quietly on the ground right now. But Henry is kind of like a dog dog. Woodrow was a gentleman in a dog suit and Henry is a dog in a dog suit. And Woodrow being the sort of George Clooney-like gentleman that he was, he affected, I think, just about everybody who touched him. He just was one of those magic creatures. So I'm really glad that readers can know even a fraction of the Woodrow magic through the memoir. And how did you decide to write the memoir? Great question. I never had aspired to write a memoir. And I read a lot of memoir to learn how to do life, basically. I feel as though every memoir is a torch held up on a really difficult path by another writer who's showing us all how to get through that situation. Like I read Tara Westover's Educated, 
I read Anne Patchett's group of essays, including the one in which she loses her dog, Rose. I love Cheryl Strayed's Wild, which I read at various stages of my life, and especially when my mom was sick, and Augustine Burroughs Dry. So each one of these books really taught me about how people get through difficult times. And I always thought, even though I'm not lacking for dramatic situations in my life, who am I to really try and tell other people how to do this? And how can I put my arms around a situation that is as big as grief? or as big as codependence, or as big as a family member being bipolar. So instead, what I would do is kind of pull those situations inside out into fiction, so that instead of being instructive, I was simply putting a situation on the table. But while I was sitting on the bench and watching all of these people give love to Woodrow, I started to contemplate writing the memoir because I thought, first of all, I want to pay homage to my dog who I loved more than anything. And what better way to do that than to use the muscles I've been flexing since I was four years old, my writer muscles. And once I saw all of these people showering him with love and coming together in that way, I thought, well, the world might really want to know about this because we're in such a troubled and sore place. And this is really a torch of hope. So that's how I came to write the book. It is a torch of hope. I like that expression. And I think everybody welcomes these type of stories right now, always. I mean, I always love these type of stories, but right now I really love them. Same here. I think uh, it was NBC News that during the pandemic started running a feature called There's Good News Tonight. Forgive me if it's another another channel and I'm misquoting that, but I am such a weenie. Like I cry during every single one of them because I'm so grateful to see good things happening. And I think most of us feel that way, especially after you know, really divisive, you know, last five years politically, and then just going through the pandemic when we have all had our lives torqued into new shapes. So I'm hoping that Woodrow provides a sort of catharsis for people, as well as a hopeful message that, you know, we're all still here, and we all still have a yearning to help each other. And come together in time of need, or just to come together to rally around something. Exactly, exactly. In the first months of the pandemic, Woodrow was gone by then, but he had taught me really valuable lessons. But I used to walk around my neighborhoods, which felt very weird not having a dog. I was in between dogs then. But I would see the chalkboard mess or chalk sidewalk messages to first responders. People would just write things like, You're going to be okay. You are here. We see you. And then all the first responder signs in the windows and teddy bears and Christmas lights in May. And I think people have an unslakeable desire to help each other and to say, hey, we're all still here. We can hold hands in this new way. I think that's exactly right. So you referenced it before, but you have written fiction prior to Woodrow on the Bench. What was it like switching from fiction to nonfiction? And did you have trouble organizing your thoughts, putting it in a format, or was it pretty easy from the beginning to just go chronologically like you did? Yeah, really good question. I never have trouble organizing my thoughts. I am a container store person by nature. And for my novels, I outlined every one of them. And that means that I would break my ideas down into chapters and break those down into scenes and then map them to my calendar so I would know what I was writing on what day. So I'm that person, which does not in any way make it an easy thing to do because, of course, then I would rip up that outline and have 11 more outlines. The creative process (laughs) doesn't always respect my neat containers, but that's part of the journey as you go along that you you write into what you're working on. You sort of discover it as you, as you go along. And I feel comfortable having that blueprint. For the memoir, it was actually, Cindy, so much easier because when I'm writing fiction, I often feel more like a medium pulling characters and their situations down from thin air. 
and then trying to organize them into some sort of readable form. With the memoir, all I had to do, quote unquote, was write what had happened as clearly and honestly and hopefully engagingly as possible. And there were only two things that were a little more difficult. The first was that when you write fiction, the author is hidden and is supposed to be hidden. The worst thing you can say in a writing workshop to any writer is we can see your hand at work. Like you want the reader to be caught in a fictional dream that feels completely real and the writer's not supposed to invade that. So the writer gets to hide. So you take your own emotions and then you disguise them in character and plot. With memoir, you have to show emotional vulnerability because that is what connects you to readers. Again, that experience of saying you are not alone in feeling X or Y. And that was a brand new experience for me that I call showing my emotional underpants. I love that. Thank you. And disclosing, you know, why was I caring for my old dog all by myself? What choices had I made in my life to lead me to this place that I felt was very difficult and often very lonely? What was it like to struggle with Woodrow's illnesses and ailments physically? Why did I have such a hard time at first letting people in? And how did I come to accept that help? And all of that felt like I was sort of lifting my skirt to show the reader my underwear and not my good like date night, lazy boy short, Victoria's Secret underwear, but like my granny pants that I've been wearing for like five days. They're all ripped up. But that's part of what you do with memoir. And it's, it's a way of saying, again, if you feel alone, if you feel sad, if you're really struggling with losing your animal or a person you love, or if you find X or Y funny or moving or causing grief for you, you're not alone. Like, look, here's my underwear. I do, I do it too. So that was, that was a new thing. And that last chapter of the book, when I had to let Woodrow go was also tremendously hard to write. I would bet so. And, you know, back on the memoir part of it, you're bearing your soul. I mean, it's so personal and you're going to have all of these details about yourself and your life out there that, as you mentioned, you wouldn't have to do when you were writing fiction. Exactly. And memoir also, unless you're a total hermit, involves other people. So any memoirist worth his or her salt will tell you the most difficult thing about writing memoir is fear of hurting somebody you love or misportraying somebody. And in some sense, I was lucky because the subject of my memoir is my beloved old dog, and he had already crossed the river by the time I wrote the memoir. So, you know, if I insult him, I hear about it on his social media pages when he still casts his opinions from from beyond the grave. But there were people in the book whose situations I wanted to chronicle honestly, and yet they were very tender situations. Like I referred to my former fiance, Jim, who plays a big part in the book and what had gone on between us that made him my former fiance and not my current fiance and why I was then alone because we weren't together and he couldn't help me as much with Woodrow as he wanted to. That was very delicate, I felt. And so when I finished writing those sections, which I wanted to do as honestly as possible, I sent them to him to read. And he was like, do we have to put this in there? And I'm like, yeah, kind of, you know? And then finally he just said, you know, go with God. Like, I think you did this very sensitively and respectfully and it is true. So there you go. But I interviewed Cheryl Strayed once about her experience writing memoir. And she said, anybody who's out there contemplating writing the truth about your life, as long as you know what your motive is and you're not doing it out of revenge, and as long as you can tolerate the consequences, then it's something you should do. But it is definitely something that sits on a writer's conscience if you're writing memoir. And I think that is a good point. As long as you're trying to tell your story and how you viewed it and how it seemed to you at the time versus revenge or getting back at someone, then hopefully it will all go well. Yes. I think anything that's basically done out of love will 
age well, as they say. I think initially people are a little surprised when you write about them. I've seen myself in other people's writing and I'm like, oh, you really think I did that? <laughs> did I sound that way? Do I use 14 syllable words all the time? But for as obnoxious as I can be, it's an honor to be written about. And I hope that the people in the memoir see themselves in the way I intended, which is purely out of love and gratitude. Well, that was actually one of my questions for you. Your relationship with your friend, Julie, who had come over Thanksgiving, I think it was, when Woodrow was kind of starting to really have a hard time. So did you all resolve all of the issues related to that? And are you back on track now? Oh my gosh, absolutely. In fact, I was just texting with her, my puppet, I call her, we call each other puppet, right before I hopped on to talk to you. And Julie was so funny. I I wrote the memoir, sent her all of it to read because she's also a writer and said, you're in the November Thanksgiving chapter. And that was such a tough chapter for, for readers who haven't read the book yet. Woodrow was really starting to falter then after having enjoyed a miraculous stay of execution, he was really having a rough time. And Julie being my best friend was the only person who said to my face, pup, I think he's really struggling and it's almost time to let him go. And I was so angry. I was like, how could you say that? He's right here and he can hear you and you're sapping him of his will to live. And basically that situation was me lashing out at somebody who I knew loved me and would therefore not walk away because I was upset and she didn't. But she also didn't know until after I sent her the memoir that I was really mad at her. Okay. That's so funny. I wondered, you know, as I was reading that, I wondered if she knew how upset you were. And I realized as you're reading it, you totally understand that she does love you. That's why she's saying what she's saying, but you also understand how frustrated you were and how hard it is to hear that. And, you know, to have somebody be that honest with you, eventually you really appreciate it, but it's hard sometimes in the moment. Yes. And her number one quality is that she's always been honest and has sort of acted as a model of honesty for me. And I think Cindy, that writing the memoir actually has made me a more emotionally disclosive person, has made me a more honest and open person. And it's not like I was walking around lying all the time before this, but I was very private, which is something that I discuss in the memoir. And it's why partly my life was so difficult with Woodrow because I wasn't able to disclose that I needed help or that I was lonely or that I needed company or whatever. And he really taught me how to do that. His extremity taught me how to do that. But I think now the lessons that he taught me and that Julie taught me about honesty have carried over into my life long after he's gone. And I'm really grateful for that. I'm very personal too. And I don't really like to disclose a lot of different things about my life to people. And I think that is hard and you don't always want to ask for help as a result. But also I think that I end up avoiding things sometimes that, you know, you're going to have to deal with in the, the final time anyway but I end up putting it off and putting it off and then it hangs over me and then I can't sleep. And it's one of those things I kind of continue to work on, like address it in the moment versus letting it sort of take over my life for a period of time with the same result in the end. Totally right. And I find that the things that I do avoid, which I think I've probably done less and less, another gift from Woodrow, but those are the things that I get busy brain about in the middle of the night. Like you wake up and you have that hamster wheel going up there and it's usually a sign that, oh, this is something that I'm either processing or need to work on. Yeah. I laugh because I wake up in the middle of the night and I'll have some grand solution that in the middle of the night seems like it's a really great way to deal with the problem. And then I wake up the next morning and I am recollecting that. And I'm thinking I could no more do that than fly to the moon. It's just sort of funny how your brain 
just kind of takes over. And in the middle of the night, things look so different than they do during the day. So completely true. And the things that seem most pressing to me in the middle of the night, I'm either waking up thinking, oh, that again, you know, it's an ongoing situation that doesn't have an easy solution, but I'm sort of processing it. Or it doesn't seem that important, which is great. The light of day is a great panacea. It definitely is. Well, I love to talk about covers. So I'd love to talk a little bit about yours, how it came about and sort of the whole process. I would be delighted. I love to talk about covers as well. Most authors do not have significant say in their cover art. The best we usually have is veto power, but this cover for Woodrow on the Bench, I love so much. And usually I I go to the art department, I go to my editor at my publisher and say, hey guys, I have this great idea for a book cover. And they're like, that's nice. You're the author. We are the art people. Go sit in the corner. You know, we'll take your, your thoughts under advisement. But this time I went to my editor, Sarah Nelson at Harper, who is amazing. I love her. And I said, Sarah, I've been pitching this book to everybody as it's kind of like Tuesdays with Maury, but with all of the lessons coming from my very elegant old black lab. So I wonder if the cover could be somewhat reminiscent of the Maury cover because it is, it is in a way a sort of a self-help parable. And she took that idea to the art department and they ran with it. So the book has this sort of maroon border like Maury and a, and a beige background. And for a while, the art department was wondering, should they do an illustration of Woodrow on the front or should they do something different than they did? In the end, they went with this photo that I sent them that is my hands down, paws down, favorite photo of him ever, where he's looking up and smiling and he's at the vet. And the reason he's smiling is there are ladies at the vet. George Clooney of Dog loved him some ladies. And they were all holding out treats and like tongue depressors with easy cheese. And so he was always thrilled to go to the vet. And so that was the photo they used. And he looks really, really happy. And so I hope the cover brings everybody joy and also draws new readers to the book. Well, I wondered as I was looking at the cover, if the beige wasn't the bench that you sort of were making the bench in the middle of the book and then with Woodrow's picture on it. Oh, that's such a creative idea. I mean, I could say yes, but I, I would probably be lying about that. One of my favorite things about the book is when you open it up, you'll see that between each chapter, and there are seven chapters, one for each month that Woodrow lived after his heart failure diagnosis, and each chapter is a lesson. But between each chapter, there are these little snippets or vignettes that I call interstitials. And each one of those is about somebody in our neighborhood or somebody who we met on the bench, these extraordinary people who helped us. And at the top of every interstitial, you will see a tiny drawing of a dog next to a bench. That dog is actually Woodrow next to his bench. It's a photo of him that I took and turned into an illustration. And I sent it to Harper when we were talking about the art for the book. And they put it much to my great surprise and such joy into the book. So every interstitial has a tiny Woodrow on the bench, an actual Woodrow atop it. Okay. I'm looking at it now. And I have to say terribly that I didn't even really notice that as I was reading the book and I love it. So your bench looks a little different than the bench I was envisioning, which is the beauty of reading. I think that's neat. I love that they did that. I was so grateful for it. Harper is a great publisher in all of my books with them. They've done something a little unexpected to make the book even a little bit more magic. And that Woodrow on the bench image I've also put onto t-shirts and bandanas for dogs and cards that I hand out to people for book plates or send to readers. If they can't get to one of my readings, I'll happily, happily send you a signed book plate with a Woodrow bench illustration on it. So I would love for everybody to know that. And when I get my ish together, I'm also going to have like a Woodrow merch store on my website on jennablum.com because, you know, he's a cute dog. You might want a cute dog t-shirt or bandana at some point. Absolutely. 
In addition to being a writer, you were very busy during the pandemic because you launched A Mighty Blaze. Can we talk about that? I would love to talk about The Blaze. Yes, thank you. So A Mighty Blaze is a company that I started by mistake. Okay, I love that. A company I started by mistake. Like literally, literally, I started a company by accident. I have never been trained in business. I have never wanted to be a business person. Now I'm the CEO of this company that has 35 people working for it. And The Blaze, I started with the amazing novelist, New York Times bestselling novelist, Caroline Levitt, who's basically a heart, a human heart. And when the pandemic first started in March, 2020, we were watching in horror as our friends' book tours were being shut down, labors of love that had taken writers three years or five years or 10 years or 20 years to create, and that they were on the verge of introducing to the world they could no longer do because the world obviously was shutting down. And Caroline's response to crisis is to try and help. And my response is indignation. So we fused our responses. And I said, Caroline, I love social media. I'm going to throw up some social media pages and we will, on every Tuesday when books come out, feature all those books. Each book is like a little candle in a dark world. But if we put them all together in one place, maybe we can make a mighty blaze and draw readers to those books because readers are going to need books during this crisis and writers need to get their books to readers. So let's try that. And we had the most phenomenal luck and coverage the first week of the blaze. It was like, we were the only lifeboat rowing away from the Titanic. And like every writer in the whole world was like, please, 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 please put us online. And now blaze is almost like a TV network. We have author interviews almost every day of the week, except for Mondays, we have a podcast. We feature debuts and legends like John Irving and George Saunders and Erica Jong and Judy Bloom and Cheryl Strait and Anna Quinlan. I mean, these are people that I interviewed, which I still am just shocked about. And we have a baking show for cookbook authors. We have authors love bookstores so we can help feature indie bookstores. And we have the thoughtful bro and we have a mystery series with Hank Flippy Ryan, who's such an amazing author herself. And I just cannot tell you how phenomenal and how gratifying it is to see so many people step forward to help. Authors are incredibly generous. Publishers have been incredibly generous and the readers like, God bless you readers. You have been showing up and watching our interview since day one. And we're now going into year two stronger than ever. So I'm really excited for the blaze to keep growing. I've enjoyed so many of the events and 35 employees. I had no idea it had gotten that large. Everybody right now is a volunteer. So that's why if you're thinking I'm paying like you know all of my employees bank, you know, but we are going to be starting a sort of blaze school for authors in 2022 that will help authors with social media because most authors hate social media. Most authors don't like digital events as much. And there is a sort of a hack to it, which we've been teaching ourselves just out of sheer necessity for the past year and a half. So we're going to start sharing that with authors and making it something that they can download and and in a sort of a, a buffet style for whatever they need. And I'm, I'm really excited to do that. We also host tech host conferences and festivals online. So you can see Sanibel Writers, Sanibel Island Writers Conference, forgive me, um, Newburyport Literary Festival, Concord Festival of Authors, Salem Literary Festival. So that's something that we've been doing professionally as well. That's amazing. I knew some of the things you just described, but I didn't know all of it. And that's so smart on the social media presence because authors really do need social media, at least one platform, and not having to recreate the wheel for each individual person will be so helpful, I'm sure. 
Yeah, there is a sort of, as I said, a hat trick to it. I am a rare author who actually loves social media and I have loved it since I first got on Facebook in like 2005, which P.S. I did because there was something then called Dogbook that no longer exists, but everybody was putting their dogs on Dogbook. And I was like, oh, I don't want Woodrow to be unpopular. I better get Woodrow on Dogbook. And then I got sort of tractor beamed in by, by Facebook and, and it's all been over ever since. But I really think that for all the divisiveness of social media and for all its ills, I have also seen it provide great community for people, especially if they're far away from each other. I've made incredible friends in two dimensions who I then meet years later in three dimensions, and they're really, 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 really close and and really good people. So I would love to teach other writers and other creatives how to do this without straining themselves, but how to create and shape their presence online and reach the audience that they're desperate to reach. Well, I always say that about Bookstagram. It's the most wonderful community, such a great place to learn about new books. I've met so many people that eventually I have met some of them in person. I've been interviewing them for my Patreon community, and it's just been fabulous. I I just feel like it is such a strong way to get word out about your book. I totally agree. And for somebody who is very shy. I mean, I am just surprising to everybody because I also absolutely love speaking engagements. And as I said, we'll just run over somebody with a tractor to get to a mic. But most writers, I think, are introverted. And I am an introvert's extrovert. You know, like I need the extroversion and I also need a lot of time alone. And before social media, I was incredibly anxious about going to events where I knew nobody and or like walking into people's houses to do a book club. And I would have to sort of hide behind my professional persona. And now I feel like I can go anywhere because I know most of the people from social media. So it has been a sort of wind beneath my wings in that way. And I would love to help other writers feel that way and also make it fun. Like I know that for many people, they're like, what? Social media fun? It's just onerous, but it's not. It can be really fun. It definitely can be really fun. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really like. And based on all of the stuff you're describing with The Mighty Blaze, your list may be long. My list is long. And as soon as anybody asks me that question, it instantly vaporizes out of my head. And I cannot remember a thing that I've been reading. I'm sorry to say. But the truth is, too, there are so many books that I get sent for The Blaze that I rarely have time to read anything. And if I'm reading anything, it's usually the book of an author whom I'm interviewing because I will always read not only an author's book, but like all of the author's books before I do an interview. One of the books that I'm looking forward to reading that I have as an audiobook that I'm going to listen to as I drive is Peter Heller's The Guide. I love everything Peter Heller writes and we had him on Blaze and I fangirled on him most awfully. So I'm really looking forward to listening to The Guide. And I did love Nicholas Butler's Godspeed, which is about three men doing the impossible, like trying to build a house on a certain deadline and they have to do it by then. And then they'll get like more money than they've ever dreamed of, but like why they have to build the house in this way and what that sort of pressure does to them. And their relationship is really interesting. And Nicholas Butler can land a story like nobody else. I know as soon as we stop talking, I'm going to remember 50 other books, but if you go to the blaze, you'll see all the things that we've been featuring and all the things we've been reading and just like really fantastic stuff. I laugh that you say that about everything leaving your head because I'm the exact same way. I mean, all I do is live and breathe books. As soon as somebody says, well, what do you recommend? Or what have you read recently that you loved? My whole mind just goes blank. And I have to be like, give me a second and it will come back. Well, thank God I'm not the only person. I could literally write it on my hand and look at my hand and still not be able to read my own hand. Like I just forget. I will say that the book that I'm carrying with me on tour that 
I keep opening every night with great love and then falling asleep instantly because I'm doing a lot of driving and speaking is Brenda Janowitz's galley of the Elizabeth Taylor ring. And Brenda Janowitz and Pop Sugar, um, the dinner party, like she's so fantastic and everything she writes is just like candy to me. So Brenda, I have your book with me, carrying it across country, love it, love the whole concept of it. And this family dealing with an heirloom ring that they didn't know they had. And I'm really excited to read that when I can slap myself awake. I love her. I've met her a couple of times at Book Expo. I really liked the Grace Kelly dress, her last book. And I have that galley too. And I'm really looking forward to reading it. I'm just not quite to that month yet in my reading. Oh my God, isn't all the Brenda stuff totally luscious? Also, like I have to give a shout out to Pam Jenoff for those who like historical fiction. The Woman with the Blue Star was a huge hit earlier this year, instant New York Times bestseller. You should definitely read that if you're interested in World War II era fiction. I really liked that book and I interviewed her for the podcast and it was such an interesting conversation. I will admit that Pam is one of my besties. And one of the reasons she is one of my besties is that she's just so freaking smart. And all of her books have so much integrity and so much heart. Like she's a menchette. So Brenda and Pam and Nick and Pete, like those are all the books I would recommend. Well, those all sound great. Jenna, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I know you're busy with your tour. And I just loved the book and I'm so glad we got to chat about it. The pleasure is truly 1000% mine. Thank you so much for asking about Woodrow on the Bench and spending this time with me. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no 
and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.